Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Promotional support for this episode of the Hinckley Report podcast is provided by Trib Talk, an award-winning news podcast from the Salt Lake Tribune. Join host Benjamin Wood, Tribune reporters, and community guests as they dive into the latest topics affecting Utahns. Find Trib Talk at sltrib.com or by searching for Trib Talk on most major podcast platforms. Tonight on the Hinckley Report, the race for the governor's office shakes up as new candidates decide to throw their hat in the ring. Legislators scramble to work through state tax reform ahead of the 2020 session. New polling shows how Utahns feel about their elected officials and major issues facing the state. And as the race for Salt Lake City's mayor draws to a close, candidates sprint toward the finish line. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Ben Wood, political reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune, Emily Clark, anchor for ABC4 News, and Scott Howell, former state senator. Thank you all for being with us this week. I uh, want to talk about what's happening a little bit in Washington, D.C., but how it's impacting what's happening in Salt Lake City and in Utah. And, and, and Scott, we're going to start with you for a minute, okay? Because we have a recent poll out by Utah Policy that's going through how Utahns feel about our elected officials in D.C. And these are tied to what's happening in D.C., particularly as our elected officials try to navigate that line with how to handle the Trump administration. And I want to uh, first uh, hear your, your thoughts about Congressman McAdams, because he scored the highest in this particular poll. 54% of Utahns, these are likely voters, said they support him, the highest of our delegation. Explain that. Well, um, it's probably because when he interned in my office, uh, a <laughs> <Exactly>. few. <laughs> no, he taught him everything he knows. He taught him, uh, no, uh, Ben really did. He interned for me, and then we kept him on. He is so bright, and I love how he goes through the process of trying to decide when he's going to make a decision. He wants to go into discovery mode, gather all the facts, and then he wants to be able to determine if those facts justify the means. And I think Utahns are centrist. Uh, I think at the end of the day, they really are centrist. And I think this far left and far right just doesn't cut it in Utah. And he seems to be the one that is the most uh, capable of being able to bring people together. And it doesn't surprise me at all that he, that he is as high as he is. Well, he's also the new guy on the scene, so he really hasn't done anything enough yet on that level to make anyone very yeah. mad yet. So I think we're all like, okay, we like what you're saying. I love the discovery mode comment because yeah. that's definitely the truth. But he's also the newer guy, so he hasn't had enough time to mess up. Mm -hmm. So let's compare him to a couple of these other uh, members of Congress, Ben, because you've done some stories on this just recently also. Because even as, as he talks about having a 54% approval, he has 30% disapproval of Utahns in that same category. You look at... Uh, Congressman Curtis, 45% approval. Stewart at 37% approval. Those are pretty low numbers. Does that mean that he's walking that line better than the others or just he 
just doesn't have it on him yet, as Emily was just saying. He is walking that line, but he's also someone that you do have an opinion about. With some of his colleagues in the delegation, there is a varying levels of don't knows when you ask them that question. Uh, Chris Stewart, until recently, used to have a big don't know number. That's gone down as he's made more vocal statements on the national you know, news cycles. So with Ben McAdams, I think you have an opinion of him. And that helps boost those numbers one way or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, Emily, I know you talk to lots of people about this particular issue, but when, when Utahns are thinking about their elected officials, where do they want them to be, particularly as it comes to issues with President Trump and the administration? They want them to be where they are, right? They want to be want their elected officials to see what they're going to say. And I think we're all just a little uneasy, and we don't want to make too many opinions quite yet. We're not happy with what's going on, but I don't think anyone knows how to fix it. Mm -hmm. And this whole impeachment idea, while it might be the solution, that's scary. So I think a lot of people kind of don't know. They know, but they don't know how to fix it. I think Governor Herbert said it best. You know, the big tent back there, what's going on in that dome. And this, what happened this past week when they went up to the skiff, all those Republicans, what scares me about that is are we losing the rule of law in our Congress and in our society? And all of a sudden, and now do we just take things into our own hands? Yeah. And to me, that was horrible. That was terrible. Um, you know, I lived through the Utah State Legislature and all the closed-door caucuses of my colleagues up there. We never once thought of going in and storming in and, and causing that ruckus. And there's a process that's in place. I mean, you know this, Ben. You know the process of they've got to go into fact-gathering. And you want that. It's like a grand jury. Now, all of a sudden, could Emily and Ben and I go down and storm into a grand jury and say, we want to know what you're talking about? Yeah. I, I want to break this down for just a minute. Maybe it'd be helpful if we watch this clip from the governor. So it was the governor's news, news conference where he, put the, where he put this emphasis on the circus that it is. But let's get a couple of these points and see where it leads to some of our own officials. So let's roll this clip uh, from the governor's news conference. Years ago, my youth played a lot of baseball. And when the team, even our own team, would make errors, we used to yell from the dugout, put a tent on that circus. I think that's what we need to say about Washington. Put a tent on that circus. Uh, there's just a lot of uh, uh, things going on that we all are puzzled about. The decorum or lack thereof, the hyper-partisanship uh, on both sides of the aisle. This is serious, and we should be treating this as a serious issue. There are certainly questions. There is a process outlined in our Constitution to answer these questions, uh, impeachment, the Senate trial, you know, let that roll out. So, Ben, very interesting comments from the governor. I want to break down a couple of these points. One is sort of the decorum. And, and Scott, you got to that just a moment ago. I mean, how are Utahns feeling when they see that, when they see Republicans storming this, this secure room, even though some of them could have been there anyway? I mean, how is that perceived, really, by Utahns? I would imagine they're perceiving it much the way that Governor Herbert is. And one thing that I found interesting about his comments, I reached out to his office to confirm that I understood him correctly. He calls it a circus. He talks about lack of decorum. He does not call it a witch hunt. He does not call it a, a political hoax or a, you know, a inappropriate uh, abuse of power. He says that, yes, there's problems, but that the process should go forward, that there is a constitutional process, and he would like to see that play out, which does differ from what we're hearing from some of his colleagues on the right. So, Scott, you started talking about that just a moment ago when you were, were in the legislature as well. 
Is this a secret process that's going on, or is this just the, the stage of the process we're in? How is that being messaged, and do people really think they're just being left out of it? Well, I, I think that uh, it's the part of the process, and I'm glad that Ben called the governor to get clarification on that, because the far right will sell this whole message about, oh, they're, they're, they're keeping these secret meetings and, quote, the great state. I still don't understand what that is. It's beyond my capabilities, but the conspiracy theory. And I, I think you've got to go through the process. Now, Adam Schiff, say what you want about him, but he is doing the process, what we have in law and what we should do. And that's the principle of, of, of what runs the Constitution, that runs the, the uh, Congress, and it, it's the, what we should do. And for them to go in there, and, and Ben said this so eloquently, you know, they are not, only that group is mimicking what the president is saying. You know, the, it's a witch hunt, it's, the, it's those evil Democrats. But it's not. And look, I, I blame both sides on this, because I think there's a better way to do this and better collaboration. But the, at the end of the day, I, I'm so grateful that Utahns are seeing through this of what's happening. Look, if the president is guilty, we should go through the process, and it should go to the Senate, and we should have the trial, and move on. It's just that simple. But boy, more and more that I read about what happened, it, there's something there. It's just not something to be ignored. Emily, as a member of the press, as you're following this so closely, are you feeling like you're getting the peek into the what's the process of what's happening, like you would like, or are you are you willing? We to always wait want for more some... access. Are you kidding me? We'd like to see everything. Just open those doors, leave them wide open, let us sit right there front center stage. I think if they're following the rules, then it's okay. But if they're not, it's not. But the bottom line is, the more exposure and the more open you are the less questions there are, and everyone can just see what's happening. Okay, let's talk about what Utahns are thinking about these, these very great insights, because they are, they are echoed in, in the polling that going forward. Uh, Utahns were asked whether or not they would support this impeachment inquiry, which is just so interesting. Of, of likely voters in Utah, 42%, Ben, say that they would support this impeachment inquiry, uh, uh, as opposed to 56% uh, who oppose it. 56% oppose, 42%. Uh, support, which is interesting because I just want to break this down for your analysis. That's 80% of Republicans are opposed and 92% uh, and of Democrats support. I mean, where do we find the balance when it is just so extreme on both sides? Partisan always plays a, partisanship plays a huge role in these things, but it is still early. I mean, the formal inquiry has only been launched. We're, we're in just the first few weeks. They're, they're still in the closed door portions of these hearings. We would expect that to then transition to a more public phase and then the articles and then a trial. So I, I, I wouldn't expect large scale numbers of Republican Utahns to have, you know, switched their allegiances here. But it is, it is telling that some already have, some are beginning to question. I mean, as Scott was saying, I mean, there are questions that people do want answers to. We, we don't have all the answers yet, but we're starting to get some. Uh, Emily, we're, we're trying to understand how this is impacting our members of our Senate. So Mitt Romney has really not shied away from going after President Trump on specific issues. Lately, uh, he seems more at ease doing that. He and seems it, to be liberated is what they said in that Atlantic article. Yeah, it, yeah. it did say that. I mean, do, do you feel like he is? And, and putting that in context with uh, his approval is about 46% in the state of Utah. Uh, and that's all, all ends of the spectrum. So is he liberated? And what kind of impact is it having on his well, popularity? I think he's starting to be. He was really quiet there at first, but now he's starting to be a little more vocal. And maybe his approval ratings aren't showing it, but I think a lot of people are sitting back and saying, thank you. 
thank you for speaking out in, uh, in a group that doesn't want to speak out because a lot of people are nervous about making President Trump mad. President Trump did get mad with what uh, Romney had to say, calling him some not-so-nice words on Twitter. But I think some people, if you are opposed to President Trump, you're going to love what Senator Romney is saying. If you love President Trump, you're not going to love it. But for those in the middle, it's like, okay, thank you. We like this. So, Scott, it's very insightful. So maybe this hasn't changed that much. If Mitt Romney's seeing a 46% approval overall, but he's not lost the middle, he's picked up a few of the independents. Is he really worried about uh, going after President Trump? No. Senator Pierre, uh, <laughs> Senator Romney. Uh, Senator Delecto. Yeah, Delecto. Senator Delecto. Yeah. Yeah. Pierre Delecto. Uh, look, I, I've known Mitt for a long time since the Olympics, and Mitt will always put people before party. And I think that's what, what we need in our political system today. I think we need people who are willing not to toe the party line and do what's right for the everyday citizen in the great state of Utah. And I, I that's why we put him there. Yeah, exactly. Is to represent all of us all here of us. in the state of Utah. And, and Emily, I appreciate that so much. When I was first elected to the Senate, a lesson that I learned from one of my constituents, they wrote me this letter and they said, I didn't vote for you and I'm, uh, I'm a Republican, but you represent me and I have a voice. And I've, I kept that letter the whole time. And I, it, it re-reminded me that yeah, that's the job, is to try and represent the majority of the people within who, uh, who elected you. And so in I... A, in a perfect world. Doesn't always happen, world. but no, in a perfect doesn't. world, that's the goal. But I applaud Mitt to have the courage to take up. And what the president said about him, how offensive, how, how fifth grade... A school bully type of stuff. And Senator Romney was looking at pumpkins with his grandchildren. <laughs> he was. He was out in the pumpkin pack. Can you imagine that? He goes, okay, kids, let's let, oh, it's from the president. Oh, oh that's yeah. what he thinks of me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's switch gears just a little bit to our, our legislature. Ben, uh, they've been back together uh, trying to figure out what's going to happen with tax reform mm -hmm. uh, this next legislative session. Looks like they might want to have a special session in December. Give us a little bit of an understanding about the options on the table. I mean, really, it comes down to three options. I mean, they, they're, they're saying that we do not have enough money in the general fund to pay for everything. So what that means is you either raise taxes, which they will not do, or you take the money from somewhere else. In this case, they're looking at the education fund. They're looking at tearing down some of the walls that have separated our, our money into certain areas so that they can pull that into other things. And that is what the recommendations show. They're looking at an income tax cut. They're looking at moving money from education to the general fund and then you know, moving some things around in the process. Uh, Emily, let's take a, a look at a couple of these key points. Uh, let's talk about food, for example. Ben yeah. just mentioned that. that. So that's one of the options right here. And the desire to lower the income tax rate for everyone in the state, personal and corporate, uh, they start taking care of some increases on other sides. Food is one of those. Uh, some ideas for us about how Utahns feel about increasing that rate on food. Well, I don't think anyone feels good about it, but I think the big issue that you have to look at is there are a lot of Utahns who go hungry every single day. So if you start increasing the taxes on food, how are you gonna feed those Utahns that are hungry, right? That's one big concern, huge concern. How are we gonna feed those Utahns that are hungry? If you can figure out that solution, then I guess, We'll be ready for it, but that's something that needs to be in the back of the minds the whole time, is there are Utahns in our state right now that are hungry, and they need to not, they need to be fed, and we don't want that number to get bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, Scott, what Emily said was, was right, and uh, they're looking at a potential credit for uh, people who are at certain ends of the spectrum on being able to afford their food. I was only concerned a moment when Karen Maine said, we'll just start taxing Diet Coke. Yeah. Uh, okay, that would not go well, but you'd probably make a lot of money if you started doing that. Uh, 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 Scott, how does that play into that overall strategy right there? You, you start increasing the rate on, on, on one end of the spectrum, in this case for food, you give a credit. Does that really help balance that 
that out? Does that sell it for Utahns? Are they willing to trade that for the income tax reduction? Um, Lowell Benyon was one of my mentors in life, and he started the food bank here. And as the original sponsor of the tax to do away, uh, sales tax to do away on food, yeah. way back in, I think it was 1998 when we first did that, um, I just can't justify in my mind, and Emily said this, to tax something that is so critical to the life and, and soul of Utahns. It just doesn't make sense to me. And on the other hand, constitutionally, we are mandated to take income tax and put it in education. And our education system is still like 48th, 47th in the country on funding. So uh, I applaud the legislature for looking at services because we're turning from a consumption um, uh, uh, consumer to a one that uses services. And maybe it makes sense. Now, if you're a massage therapist, you hate this bill. No, you don't like it, but at least you're not taking away from education. Right. And, and the way that they explained it best to me is in the old days, and I'm old, uh, I'd go buy a lawnmower from Home Depot. We'd get the sales tax. And then I'd go buy rakes and all that. Today, more than likely, people use a service yeah. of, of a company that does that. So they're losing that base of income tax, I mean, of sales tax, and there, there needs to be a way to make it up. So with the surpluses we had last year, though, I'm still kind of miffed about why we're jumping on this so quickly. I would not call a special session on this. I'd wait till the legislature, because it's going to be one of those things that people are going to think, you ramrodded this again. Yeah. Inland port, I mean, you can go back through the history of what. So why do they do it then? Well, I, I think there's a genuine concern that there's not going to be enough money at some point. And I, uh, they need to study it. Lyle Hilliard and um, Representative, uh, who, who's the House sponsor? I can't remember, uh, from down south. But they did a good job. They went out and they pulled a lot of people. But I wouldn't do it in a special session. You can't ever get the same feedback. You can't ever get the same uh, responses when you do a special session. This is a big deal. You need to get it right. Now, obviously, whatever they decide is not going to be the done deal because you can still work on it. But you need to do it, get it right. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the groups impacted, Ben, is uh, is public ed, and Concerned. also and also higher ed, right? Mm -hmm. So if you take a, if you take away that constitutional requirement that's designated funds, income tax, straight to public ed, how are they feeling right now, and what is their strategy? Well, they're not feeling great, and their strategy is kind of to wait and see. There's been some talk about creating some new alternate funding source for education. Nobody seems to know what that could be, but everybody's talking about you know ongoing negotiations and ongoing discussions. They're very nervous. Educators, and they have a reason to be nervous. This plan, as recommended, would take hundreds of millions of dollars out of education and put it towards other things. Which again, not that those other things don't need right. money, but if as you were saying, Scott, I mean, our school funding levels are notoriously low when compared to the rest of the nation. If you think that can go a little lower, sure. If you don't, then you have reason to be worried. Well, mm -hmm. in every single session, we're going to help education. We're going to help education. So if you're doing this, you're just backtracking on what the goal has been for so many years. Well, I'll go, go ahead, Scott. Well, no, I think Utah is right at the cusp of being a technology leader. And we're also at the cusp of, of uh, having some of the brightest talent and innovators in the world starting to come here. But they will not come here if they can't see that there's a clear pathway of having strong quality education. And teachers who are paid fairly that can live here, you know, live within a community, uh, it, it, to me, it just doesn't, makes no sense. We want to fund education as much as we can. You know, as a parent and grandparent, I want my kids to have the very best public education they can get so they, we can be a competitor in the world economy and in innovation. 
Look at Silicon Slopes out there. Those, those people want their kids. They're not going to come here if they, if they think that our uh, education is a third or fourth rate education. So I, Ben summed this up. Uh, and, and the question I have, how can you skirt the Constitution on this? Won't we have to go back and have a constitutional change to, if we start taking money out of that fund to fund other projects? You will? Yeah, you will. Yeah. That's why this will be a resolution. That's a big deal. Uh, Two thirds of both bodies and then the majority mm -hmm. of citizens have to vote for it. And that, yeah. Okay, well, we'll watch closely in December and see what they leave for the, for the whole process in January when they convene. Uh, can we talk about the governor's race for a minute? This has been a this has been a fun, a fun week <laughs> so for those that watch this kind of this kind of thing. We have it's only going to get more fun. It, it is okay. So uh, Emily, so we have one new candidate this week, Amy Winder Newton, yes, we Councilwoman. Do. She has announced. What else are you hearing? Who else is on the table? Well, who's the big made question better? is Huntsman, right? We're yeah. all waiting just to see what is former Governor Huntsman going to do. Are you going to make the call right now? <laughs> well. No. Okay. Not, not really. How does this shake things up, Ben? If, if he does decide, this is... Changes uh, everything. Go Governor Huntsman, yeah. When he decides, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> okay, he was a little more willing, it sounded like. So, so in November, he's going to decide, no, like, in the next week. I'm sure I understand the question. I'm not editorializing. Okay, <laughs> yes, I, we do understand that, Ben. So, so t tell us how that impacts people who we know are thinking about getting in the race if he starts signaling that he's probably in. I wouldn't want to run against him. Yeah. I mean, he's he's a big name. He is well connected. He has experience. He's he has about a, the best resume you could ask for someone coming into the state, after being a multiple-term ambassador in various countries, as well as a presidential candidate, a former governor of this exact state, where he's generally regarded as having done a good job. No, he would be a formidable opponent. Okay, you want to handicap this one, little Scott? Um, I am thrilled that there's a woman in the race. Let me just say that. I am thrilled this will be the first time we have a woman running for governor of the state of Utah. Even though we were the ones who brought in suffrage and we, we were the leader in Martha Hughes Cannon and all that. So I'm thrilled. Um, Greg Hughes, uh, all the big names are out there. John, I believe, will run. And I believe that uh, you'll see some other names. I think Thomas Wright is going to be a candidate and he's going to be a tough candidate. People like him. Uh, he's paid his dues. Uh, he's a smart guy. The speaker is going to be a tough candidate too. Uh, it's interesting that the lieutenant governor Cox is was was riding real high up there, and then all of a sudden it's it's kind of just slowly starting to dip. Uh, but I think it's terrific. And the Democrats, um, I think we're going to draft Emily. Is the last okay. thing that I yeah. heard. So she can I be the it. woman. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So look, can we talk about a couple of these numbers for a minute, Emily? Because I think it's just so interesting how this is breaking down. If the election were held today on a couple of these polls, uh, this is a Utah Outlook poll, uh, put Huntsman at 33%, and that was the highest of this is likely voters across the spectrum here. 33%, uh, Spencer Cox at 26%, Spencer Eccles at 5% if he decides to jump in this race, uh, Thomas Wright at 4%, and Greg Hughes at 2%. Okay, so what's interesting to me as I look through this is we have candidates right here just mentioned that are all ends of that political spectrum. All right, so kind of how does that play out for these candidates that are a little more, I would say, more, more centrist? You know, this was like maybe Spencer Cox, maybe Spencer Eccles, and also John Huntsman. How does that open up windows for people like Thomas Wright? Well, because I think it's something different. The people who are putting their name in are pretty similar. So if someone different comes in, the voters who maybe not so keen on someone who's so similar, so established. Spencer Cox has been doing this for a while, right? Even though he maybe didn't set out to immediately. But Thomas Wright, different. Not someone you've seen there for a while. He'd be a different option mm -hmm. than maybe what would be on the table. Okay. Any of these candidates we just mentioned, uh, Ben, that you're hearing on the street may decide not to jump into this race if John Huntsman? 
Uh, I mean, I, not at, at that equation. This poll was the first time I'd heard Spencer Eccles in, on the list. So I, I'm, I'm sure he probably is looking at running. I hadn't heard that yet. Whether or not he would run against Huntsman is a whole different question. And with these numbers, I would add, I mean, there is the caveat that when we poll the entire state, the entire state doesn't get to vote for the Republican nominee. Only Republicans do. And the Republican nominee is heavily favored to win the state as a whole. So when we look at these polls, you do have to pay attention to who the Republican voters are saying, and they actually said Spencer Cox. Uh, which, which they did at 34%. So, uh, so Scott, before we leave, just because you've been part of the political process in the election so, so, so long, is this really, for this race, uh, just a primary race? Whoever comes out of that primary is the next governor? And if so, how do these candidates approach it? That's kind of what Ben was saying. I, I, I hate to say yes, <laughs> but I know exactly what that Democrat will get, 35 to 38 percent. Yeah, that's it. Emily would probably get close to 50 Thank if you. she ran. But no. Campaign I, manager, yeah. it seems, yeah. right here. Hey, we're, we're <laughs> There we are. We're ready. Um, what's interesting on that, I forgot about Spencer. He, he's a great candidate. Uh, he's very bright, and he's one of those that could just slide through and go all the way up. You know, at one time, Greg Miller was thinking of mm -hmm. running as well. And uh, so w your question about who's going to be falling out, I think they might take it to the end of the goal line, but who gets over and who can make it through the convention process? It's tough. Mm -hmm. And it, it's like the far right runs those conventions. And who will appeal to those, those candidates? Um, I, I think gathering signature, any one of those could go out and hire it and have it done like that. You, you think yeah. they're all going to get signatures? Yes. Do you all yes. think that? All, yes. That is just the way to do it now. That's the way you do it now. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. it's it, too risky not to. Exactly. It's too That's risky what not to at this point. Okay. Insurance policy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah insurance policy. Okay. There's one more race. We're going. We will have an answer to very soon. Uh, the Salt Lake City mm -hmm. Mayor's race. Current polling puts Aaron Mendenhall at 42 percent. Luis Escamilla Escamilla at 37 percent with an enormous number of don't knows. Emily, 21% of Salt Lake City residents say they don't know. What's happening in these races going forward? Tell us, tell us what you're hearing. I think it's interesting, and I think a lot of people are going to wait till the very last minute to make a decision. I did talk to a few uh, people that I know who are very politically active, and their idea was maybe we vote for Luz because you leave Aaron in the city council, and that way you have both leaders still representing your city. So that is an idea out there that's floating a little bit. It's, it's a little lower down, and I don't think it'll make a huge difference. But when I heard some people talking about that, I thought that's one interesting way to look at it. But the cool part is, no matter who you vote for, you're going to have another woman mayor of Salt Lake City, and you had two women running against each other, which is amazing. It's awesome. And I think I think either way you go, these women like Salt. These women love Salt Lake City. They love the great state of Utah, and their goal is going to be to take care of the capital city. Uh -huh. Ben, as you think about these two great candidates, and people are saying that they like their choices here, but it's it's interesting. Twenty-one percent still haven't made up their mind. It's not like they haven't had a chance. Yeah. So there's like a hundred debates. Lots of so, debates. Lots of why still so many undecideds. I couldn't tell you why, but if I were Aaron Mandelhall, I'd be very nervous, especially coming off of the primary election where we had what appeared to be a front runner and a large number of undecideds, and that front runner didn't even make it through the primary. And so we have seen now in this city, in this election, undecideds make up their mind late, and we don't always know which way they're going to go. I, I would have to echo Ben's comments, and, and the same with Emily. Uh, to add to that mix, to have a Hispanic uh, woman, what a message that it sends to the world. And I'm done on those polls when I had DeBacchus up there. I thought that was a slam dunk. And um, I, the 21%, if you do that math, 
Is that enough in that delta to make up between the 41 and the 30, whatever she had? I I don't know. It's going to be a very, very close race. It might come down to, right. the, you know, 15 votes. Mm -hmm. This going to be the, the last word. Everyone should show up. Yes. yes. Please vote. vote. Thank you. Vote. Please vote. Thank you for your great <laughs> insights today. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of The Hinkley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.